Creed says, I believe in Jesus Christ, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose from the dead. He ascended to heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And from there, he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe that with all of my heart. I believe that Jesus Christ is alive. And this morning, I'm not so much going to explain or defend the resurrection and the fact that Jesus is alive. Rather, I'm going to describe him to you. I think it's important that we have a picture of the risen, glorified Christ. And as you start thinking about that in your head, I did not have a near-death experience in the last few weeks. And neither have I had some crazy vision. But I am going to describe Jesus for you now, as he is and as he reigns. I wonder if you've ever considered what Jesus looks like now. What's your image of Jesus? What are your, what's the picture that comes to your mind when you think about that? How do you picture him risen from the dead? I would have liked, and I never have time to do these because I always think of them too late, but I would have loved to have gone through uh, Oceanside in the last number of weeks with a video camera and just asked people randomly, describe for me Jesus Christ today. I'm sure some would respond right away, you're nuts, buddy. There is no such thing as a Jesus Christ. I think some might say, well, you know, I, I picture him in a long white robe, sort of a glowing face with a halo on his head. I think others might say, well, you know, I, I think he kind of looks just like you and I. That's the picture of him we have at least in the Gospels. And, uh, you know, when he was raised from the dead, he had a body and he walked around and he ate and he talked with the disciples. And some might even be familiar with the stories about how he appeared and how he disappeared at will. And so you might have some sort of image of the risen Lord that is a mixture of all of that. And some of them on the street might have said to me, you know, I don't have a clue what he looks like and neither should you. And as I thought about those kinds of things, I thought, well, no, I do have a picture of the risen Christ. I do know what he looks like. And it's one that more than explains his physicality, it explains his character and it helps us understand him in his glorious risen nature. There's a few things though that I need you to do to prepare you for um, hearing this picture of the risen Lord. And I hope you again won't think I'm wacky. But you need to be willing to accept Or you need to remind yourself that things are not as they seem. Or better yet, things are not only as they seem. There is a great deal more going on around us than meets the eye. That meets the physical senses. I'm not talking about a sixth sense. It's another reality. It's a spiritual reality. And there is so much more about this world than what you can see, touch, taste, and feel with your physical senses. Before you think I'm crazy again, how many of you have ever seen the wind? Well, you might have seen things carried by the wind. You might have seen evidence of the wind in the trees or rippling the water. You might have even heard the wind as you've fallen asleep or you've been out camping But I suspect that none of you have ever seen the wind. 
yet we know it exists. In a very similar way, the spiritual world is unseen by the naked and the physical eye. Yet there is evidence of it all around us. You know of its reality, um, but it's not normally accessible to the natural eye, but it is real. And for us to understand this spiritual world, we need to suspend our experience of the physical world around us for a little while so that we can see, hear, and feel this reality that's all around us. So I ask you to do that. Secondly, you'll need to understand that how we understand this invisible world is in part through symbols and signs. They give us access to this world. They help us understand it because so much of it is beyond our ability to explain with human language, but signs and symbols help us picture it in a, in a way that's different. Take the Star Wars movies, for example. I think they're a good illustration of, of, of signs and symbols. Uh, they, they take us to a whole new world and they drop us into the middle of this epic battle between the champions of justice and freedom on the one hand and the dark empire on the other hand. And strange forces and, and grotesque creatures and high-speed flying travel gizmos and terrifying weapons of destruction appear alongside more familiar characters, human characters, and all these together combine powerfully to work in our imaginations, to dazzle our senses, and help us think about things that we, we know about but we can't always articulate. And it's these signs and symbols that allow um, these, these, uh, uh, these filmmakers to illustrate or to explore human themes like what are our core values? What are we willing to die for? What is life really all about? What are the really frightening dangers that embrace humanity today? And so we have to accept that there's an unseen world that we can't see. We have to accept that it's explained in signs and symbols. And the third point Uh, that I would need to lay before we kind of head into this is the spiritual world that we're talking about is not a fanciful world. It's not a kind of world that, that is in Star Wars or these other movies. And I would say that it is a world that is even more real than the one we commonly call the real world. And there is one book in the Bible more than any other that wants to undermine our confidence in the evidence of our eyes. It wants us to give up the notion that what we can see with our eyes and hear with our ears is all that there is. In that book, we find a description of the risen Lord, the living one. It's the book of Revelation. I want you to take your Bibles, and if you don't have one, there are some in the seats in front of you, unless you're on the front row. Um, but, uh, and Revelation is the book of the Bible that's at the very back. It's the last book of the Bible. And we're just going to go into chapter 1, and I, I want to take us through a, a few scriptures here, because what we are most familiar with as those who are engaged in the Christian church is the, the, the picture of Jesus that we have from the Gospels. It's a picture of Jesus in his humility. We are far less familiar with the example and, and the image of Jesus that we find throughout the New Testament, and that's finally revealed in the book of Revelation, which is Jesus in all of his glory. And that's what I want us to think a little bit about this morning. Starting at, at verse 1, and I'll read the first eight verses and just kind of warm us up for the picture that's to come. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to the servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ 
even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before the throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and Omega says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This book was written in about A.D. 90. It was written to confirm that Jesus Christ is alive. It presumes that Jesus is alive. It is, after all, the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the very first words of the book, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And I think what that means is that not only is it a revelation about Jesus that helps us understand Jesus, but it's also a revelation from Jesus. He's the living one, and he continues to speak to his church and his people today. And then the first few verses contain a greeting, and I just want to point out just a portion of that greeting. And and this one is no different from any other letter, but it says, grace and peace to you. I, I love those words. Sometimes our image of Jesus is one of fierce anger or wrath. But here it's grace and peace to you. How we need words of grace and peace. From Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. Jesus here is is, is extending his greetings to the church in the present And Jesus is the one who tells the truth about God. He came to earth to tell us what God wanted us to know. Everything he said, everything he did was what God wanted him to say and do. He is alive. He is the firstborn from the dead. Not only is the first one to be raised from the dead, but he is also the Lord of the living and the dead. He is over the living and the dead. And then this fascinating phrase, he is ruling the kings of the earth. Right now. Today. And when you turn on your TVs and you watch the news, when you pick up the newspapers and you hear chaos and you hear wars and rumors of war and you hear about one nation striving against another and you read about some nations trying to come up with a peace accord and others saying it's not a good peace accord, know that Jesus Christ is ruling the nations right now. This is the risen Lord. Incredible comfort, incredible peace, incredible truth about our risen Lord, Jesus Christ. And then, notice what it says a little bit farther down. What he has done for us. We give him glory because he loves us. Beloved, that's in the present tense. He loves me. Oh, how he loves me. I love that little chorus. He loves us. And what has he done for us? It says that, that, that he has set us free from our sin by his blood. That is the greatest joy of the Christian life. 
is knowing that your sins are forgiven, that you have been set free from the curse of death, that the punishment that is due your sins has been erased, and it's all happened because Jesus died for us and shed his blood for us. And then he comes back to the present, and he says, I am, right now, the living one, I am the Alpha and the Omega. In other words, I am the beginning and the end. I am the A to Z, so to speak. I am the complete one. There is nothing that has come before me. There is nothing that is coming after me. I am everything. What an encouragement to us in this world. There's nothing that catches him off guard. The one who is, who was, and is coming. Everything finds its context within Jesus Christ. And then he ends with this amazing name, the Almighty. It's only used six times in Revelations, once outside of Revelations. It's a word that I love. In fact, there's a couple young men in our church that have a shirt with the Greek pantokratos. Doesn't that just sound powerful? He is the pantokratos, the Almighty One. This is how John begins by by not giving us a picture of Christ, yet we're going to come to that just in a few moments. But he's just setting the stage for us. Jesus is alive. He is not dead. And this is what he is like, and this is what he has done for us. Then you go back to your Bible and follow with me at verse 9 now of chapter 1. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom of the patient endurance that are in Jesus Christ, was on the island called Patmos, On account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna, to Pergamon, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, seated with a long, or clothed with a long robe, with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held the seven stars. From his mouth, came a sharp two-edged sword and his face was like the sun shining in its full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Oh, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forever and I have the keys of death and Hades. Three points. The voice of the risen Lord. The clarity that it gives our lives. John doesn't identify himself as an apostle, but rather as a brother. 
Not one that is removed from the people of God, but one that is part of the people of God in expressing or experiencing the the tribulation and the persecution and the suffering that comes from being in the kingdom of God. And and, and as he's walking down the beach, he has this vision of, uh, 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 he hears this voice and then he sees this vision. And, And he's one that has been exiled there because of his testimony of the Lord. And as he's walking down the beach, all of a sudden he says, and I heard behind me a voice loud as a trumpet. There's a popular TV show right now, music TV show called The Voice. And in it, there's four judges that sit in chairs. Many of you have probably seen this TV show, and they have their backs to the performer that comes out on the stage. All they hear is this voice as they sit with their backs turned to them. John, as he's walking down the beach, hears a voice. And I wonder what was going through his mind as all of a sudden he hears this voice. Did it startle him? Like, did it stop him in his tracks? Did he, did he kind of stop for a minute and kind of do the, you know, the kind of look around sort of thing? And notice that it says, the voice was like the sound of a trumpet. It's impossible for him to describe the voice. It's not like, it was, I just heard a voice. It's like the sound of a trumpet. And, and you'll notice that in this description of the risen Lord that we're going to look at, there's a whole bunch of likes. Like, there's no real words. Remember, it's signs and symbols. There's no real words to describe the risen Lord, but rather he's like this, he's like that, his hair's like this, his eyes are like that. It's a voice like a trumpet. I went to Google. Good old Google. What, would we, what have we ever done without Google for the last, like, 500 years? Anyway, I went to Google and I typed in the sound of a trumpet. And one of the um, things that popped up was the Juilliard Trumpet Ensemble. And in 2009, it won some prestigious award. And I listened to this just incredible music of 10 to 12 trumpeteers in an ensemble. And then I listened to that and I went to the next one and listened to the U.S. Army play the Bugler's Holiday. Stunning. The, 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 the volume, the precision, the clarity. And then I listened to some of the amazing sounds of Harry James, an incredible trumpeteer. And then probably the, the one that perhaps caught my attention the most was the London Fanfare Trumpets. These guys with these, you know, they look like they're 15 feet long trumpets with the big capes coming down and they announce the entrance of the king or they play at the coronet or those sorts of things and they're usually short little ditties, but man, are they powerful. And I thought, the sound of a trumpet, it's clear, it's precise, it's distinct, it's powerful, it gets your attention. The voice John heard behind him was unmistakably distinct, precise and powerful. The clarity that the voice of the living Lord gives us. And he was told to write, a, write some words and letters to the seven churches. These are seven historical churches that were in Asia at that time. But I believe it's meant to give us a picture of the universal church. Seven is the number of perfection, of completeness. And so Jesus meant and intended his words not only for those historical churches, but for all the church that are beginning between the first days and the last days. 
And it says then that he turned to see the voice that was speaking to him. Again, if you've watched that show, The Voice, as they're listening to the song, and most often they're sitting there and they pound this button and their chair swings around, and all of a sudden they see it, who it is that's singing to them. And in the same way, it's like John whirls around and he wants to see this voice that's speaking to him. And these verses now describe what he sees. And this is what I'm saying to you. I know what the risen Lord looks like, and we're going to look at it for a couple of minutes this morning. The vision of the risen Lord, the picture it paints for us. And notice, it's a vision that's not pointing to a future reality, but rather it's describing the present. It's describing what Jesus Christ is like right now. Remember, things are not as they seem, or things are not only as they seem. And the first thing that he sees are seven golden lampstands. And these, he says, represent the seven churches who will receive a record of what the Lord or what John sees. And like lampstands, the church is to give light to the world. The church is to be a light in the darkness. But what he sees even next is even more encouragement because he says, among the lampstands was one like the Son of Man. Do you understand what that's saying? That right now, Jesus is right here among us. He's not in some distant place. He's not sort of um, uh, out there where nobody can get him. He's among us. He's among his church. He's the risen Lord. He walks among us. That's incredible encouragement to us. Yes, where is the Lord today? He's here. He's in our midst. May God give us the eyes to perceive the risen Lord. In our midst. He says he's one like the Son of Man. That's a reference back to Daniel chapter 7, where Daniel wrote, I saw in the night visions, and beheld with the clouds of heaven, behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him, to this one like the Son of a Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall never pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. You see what he's saying? When I saw Christ amongst the seven lampstands, one is the Son of Man, I saw the eternal King of kings, whose dominion will never, ever fade away. Jesus was not only a humble carpenter, he is also the ruler of the kings of the earth. Is this your picture of Jesus Christ? If not, can you think of how it might help you if you began to think of Jesus in these terms? A voice like the sound of a trumpet in the midst of his people. A king of kings an eternal one. And then he tells us how he was dressed. He says, in a long robe with a gold sash wrapped around his chest. What's John trying to convey by that? Why does he first tell us what he's wearing? Well, there is something about the fact that the clothes make the person. Don't they? Uniforms tell us a lot about people. There are distinct dresses that as you see the way that an individual is dressed, you know exactly what they are. You see an, uh, uh, an RCMP officer in their, in their blues and their yellow. You know, that's a police officer. That's an RCMP officer. Or you see the, the, the British guys with those big bear hats and those red suits and you know right away, well, that's one of the Queen's Guard. The, the, it tells you something about them by what they're wearing. What's Jesus wearing? A long robe. And a golden sash. Who wears a long robe and a golden sash? The priests. It's the description of the garb of the Old Testament priests. 
Here I believe what John wants us to know is that Jesus is our great high priest. It's a beautiful reminder of what Jesus continues to do for us today. He's not just any priest. He is the high priest. And this is what the Old Testament priests wore. He is the bridge between God and man and between man and God. He is the one that makes, us, makes it possible for us to have access to God. He is the one that mediates God's glory and power and might and word to his people. It's incredible Reminder, the golden sash around his chest. What does that mean? Some suggest that points to his leadership and his authority. Others suggest that when the sash is worn around one's waist, one is preparing for work. But when the sash is around one's chest, one is resting. And the the, the sash around his chest and not his waist or his hips because Jesus stands at rest, not at action. If this is correct, could it be a picture of our great high priest resting in his finished work? Because what did he say on the cross when he died? It is is finished. What John sees as as he's describing the risen Lord for us is he sees one who is our great high priest who gives us access to God. Then comes seven more things about him. The hairs of his head were white like white wool like snow. What's this? What's what's hair and like white wool and snow? What does that mean? Well, for example, the Ancient of Days and Daniel took his seat and his clothing was said to be white as snow and his hair was a head like pure wool. When we think of gray hair, we often think of um, age and wisdom and, and uh, sort of they've been around a long time. I remember as a young boy growing up in a church down in Victoria and seeing some uh, particularly men, I remember them most, although Kathy's mom had an amazing white head of hair. But as a, as a boy of 8, 9, or 10, I saw these guys with gray hair, and they were usher. Well, you know, I came back 25 years later, and these same men were still ushered, and they hadn't, ushering, and they hadn't changed a bit in my eyes. It's just kind of like they had this eternal nature about them. There's a sense that which white hair gives us this notion of agelessness and wisdom. But it's also a picture of purity. Because the same words are used in Isaiah 8, 118, where it says, Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Jesus Christ is the ageless, eternal, pure one. His eyes were like flames of fire. Stunning description of our Lord. The eyes tell us a great deal about a person. It's often said that the eyes are the window to the soul. I have seen a lot of different things in people's eyes. Sometimes I have seen fear in their eyes. Sometimes I have seen pain in their eyes. Sometimes I have seen incredible joy in people's eyes. Sometimes you see anger in people's eyes. The eyes are the window of the soul. And so John says of Jesus, as he sees this incredible vision of the risen Lord, his eyes were like flames of fire. Fire penetrates. Fire illuminates. Fire purifies. I think that's John's way of saying there is no way of hiding from this risen Lord. He sees into us. He sees right through us. He sees into the darkness of our lives. He purifies us. The risen Lord has penetrating insight into our lives. His feet 
were like burnished bronze refined in the furnace. What's it about the feet that we are meant to understand? This vision of the risen Lord. I think things like stability and power. Unlike feet of clay, we often talk about men and women have, having feet of clay, and, and that sort of just describes weakness. It, it describes um, um, sort of uh, instability, whereas feet of bronze give us a picture of divine strength and of stability and of solidity. And Daniel 10 again describes the Ancient of Days as his arms and his legs gleam like burnished bronze. I think what John is helping us portray and understand is that there is stability in Jesus. That there is power in Jesus. And it says his voice was like the roar of many waters. Can you think of what he might be trying to get across by that? His voice was like the roar of many waters. What might this be trying to tell us about the risen Lord? I think it's, it's trying to encourage us to think about his voice as being a dominating voice or as a predominant voice. Have you ever stood um, at the bottom of a raging waterfall? And, 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 and we, we use words to describe it like it was thunderous. And sometimes you, you might try and talk with the person you're in. It's a big, big enough waterfall. It's hard to communicate because all you can hear is the voice of this thundering waterfall. And I think what John is wanting us to hear here is that the voice of Jesus is the only voice that matters. It is the voice of Jesus that we should hear above all other voices in our lives, that it is the voice that counts. It is the voice that determines history. It is the voice that upholds this world. It is the voice that matters. The risen Lord speaks with power and authority. In his right hand are seven stars. How does this help us understand the living one? In his right hand are seven stars. Well, the right hand is often understood to be the hand of power and strength and stability. It's the steady hand. And in that hand were the seven stars. What are these? Well, you look just a little bit to the end of chapter 1 in verse 20. And it says, as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand in the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. How does that help me? What are the angels of the seven churches? Well, there's a lot of debate about what the angels of the seven churches are, but I think as I am at this point in my understanding of it, they are either the main pastor of that church or the leadership of that church. It's referring to the human leadership of the church. It's an amazing picture of the authority of Christ over his church, the power of Christ over his church, the control of Christ over his church. His purpose will succeed. His will will be accomplished. He has the church in his right hand. That's an incredible comfort for the people of God. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. You see how I uh, I, I went online, Google again, and I typed in um, this image, and there's, there's actually a few drawings of, of artists' renderings of this. And if I say this with all respect, this picture, when you look at it on papers, is almost a hideous picture. But, but, but what I'm trying to get at is this is not the physicality of Christ, but he's describing Christ in, in ways that, that, that his physicality makes sense out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. What is that pointing to? I think it's the word of God. 
The word of God is the living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of the soul and the spirit of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It, it penetrates. It's precise. It's the only word. The word of God is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Jesus is God. His word is authoritative. His word is exacting. And so as John sees this vision of the risen Lord, he recognizes that he speaks truth. And then the seventh one is, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Why this image? Why this image of a sun shining in full strength? I think in part when the sun is at sort of its, its zenith, uh, it, it is its brightest. It, it is its warmest. It, it, it dispels most light and exposes most things. There's an interesting passage in Judges chapter 531, which says that those who love you will rise up like the sun in all its power. It's describing warriors who, who has, at, at their full strength when the sun is at its height. And I wonder if this is a reference to Christ, our warrior, Christ in the fullness of his strength. He is the risen Lord. What a picture. See, that's the picture that I'm talking about when, when I say, what does the risen Lord look like right now? He's not what we generally think of and maybe not what you expected when we started this description. He is pure. He is eternal. He is strong. He is powerful. He is insightful. He is stable. He speaks with clarity and precision. That's my Lord. And finally, the victory of the risen Lord. We've talked about the voice of the Lord, how it speaks with clarity and authority. We've looked at the vision of the risen Lord and the picture that it paints for us. And we end with a quick look at the victory of the risen Lord and the comfort that it brings to our lives. Did you catch John's reaction to the vision of the risen Lord? You might just want to review it in your head. It says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. He doesn't run up to Jesus and give him a a, a big high five and say, hi, Jesus, haven't seen you in a while. He doesn't kind of run up with his Bible and a pen and says, can you autograph my Bible for me, Jesus? He doesn't invite Jesus to join him for a walk down the beach on the Lord's Day. Sometimes people talk so flippantly about their buddy, Jesus. About meeting him in a near-death experience and what a wonderful, rapturous experience that was of meeting Jesus when they died and went to heaven. In those accounts, there's never any of this falling down stuff. There's never any of this as-though-dead stuff. And yet the universal response in Scripture to people seeing God is they fall on the ground as though dead. John falls down as though dead. And we see the comfort of the risen Lord, the comfort he brings. It, it just, just notice, it says that, 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 that Jesus laid his right hand on me. The same right hand that holds in it the seven churches, the, the hand of power and might and strength is gentle enough to touch one who is as though dead and give him comfort and peace. The touch of the risen one. Have you ever been touched by Jesus? 
There's a song that we used to sing, um, maybe dates me, He Touched Me. Oh, He Touched Me. And oh, the joy that fills my soul. Something happened, and now I know He touched me and made me whole. Oh, the touch of the risen Lord. There is healing in the touch of the risen Lord. The second thing that he sees here as an act of comfort is just these words, don't be afraid. We are filled with so much fear. I think a little bit of the fear that John experienced was just the fear of being in front of the risen Lord God, the ageless one. But I think also part of his fear was, he's like you and I. He lives in a world like you and I live in. And in particular, they were suffering. They were being persecuted. Many were dying. He said, I am one of your brothers in the tribulation, in the kingdom, and in suffering. And with that, he knew that others of his brothers and sisters had already lost their lives because of their conviction that Jesus Christ had been raised from the dead. And I think Jesus' words were him, to him not only a comfort, don't be afraid of me, but don't be afraid of the world. Look, I'm risen. I have overcome. And then the final word of comfort. And you notice, you have to notice the tenses here. I am the first and the last. Not I was, not I will be. I am right now. I am the first and the last. It's very similar to I am the Alpha and Omega. What he's saying there is I am God. It's the same words that are used to describe God in the Old Testament. He says, I am sovereign over history. There is nothing before me. There is nothing after me. There is nothing outside of me. I've got you covered. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, but behold, I am alive forever and ever. Again, I am God. Death cannot hold you, John. If it did not hold me, it cannot hold you. I am alive forever and ever. And have you ever sat back and considered the comfort of these words, the living one? He's alive. And I hold the keys of death in Hades. Men and women are gripped with a fear of death. We are. One of the reasons Jesus came is that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. What Jesus is saying to John is, you know, it doesn't matter what happens to you, John, because I have the key that can set you free from death. I have the key that can release its curse on you. I have the key that can set you free. Don't be afraid. What a picture of the Lord, the risen one. Are you suffering today? Don't be afraid. Christ is the living one. Are you dying today? Don't be afraid. Even if you die, Christ has the keys of death. Are you being persecuted? Don't be afraid. Jesus is the great I am, the victorious one. I I found, as I kept going over this great comfort in thinking about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And the only way to succeed in this life is to have a clear vision of the risen one. 
a clear vision of the risen one as described by John in Revelation chapter 1 for us. Today is not a day of sadness. It's not a day of, of mourning. It's not a day of loss. Rather, it is a day of hope. It is a day of comfort for us. He is alive. And I end with these words by another commentator. It says, The presence of the risen and the glorified Jesus is the great unseen reality of the present. Right here, just behind a very thin veil, in the middle of the lampstands, clothed in a robe, reaching his feet, in a high priest's robe, in the king's robe, girded across his breast with a golden girdle, his priestly work finished, his head and his hair white like wool like snow, as divine as the ancient of days, ages himself, perfectly wise, perfectly clean. His eyes were like a flame of fire, absolutely pure and intensely purifying. His feet were like burnished bronze, strong, unmovable, burning away the evil wherever he walks. And his voice was like the sound of many waters, distinct, drowning out the empty rhetoric of the lie. And in his right hand he held the seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, able to cut to the chase and to free us by his truth. His face was like the sun shining in its strength, overwhelmingly brilliant, spilling over his people, and standing in the midst, he is saying, stop being afraid. I was dead, but look, I am alive forevermore, and I hold the keys of death. I am the living one. Oh, may we go in that comfort today.